You're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. This episode is sponsored by the Nazarene Student Center at the University of Oklahoma. The OUNSC is committed to sharing Christ's love with the students of OU by meeting them wherever they are. For more information about the Nazarene Student Center at OU or to schedule them to speak to your group, visit OUNSC.org or look for them on social media at the OUNSC. Today on the podcast, we have Reverend Jason Smith, a young associate pastor from Oklahoma. We chat about funerals, opportunities in ministry, and spiritual formation. Thanks for tuning in. Jason Smith, Reverend Jason Smith, is the associate pastor at Oklahoma City First Church of the Nazarene. Say hello. Hey. So the first question I ask everybody is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? Well, I grew up in a Nazarene home, and so I wanted to play college golf. So I was looking for opportunities to play college golf at a Nazarene school. Mm -hmm. The best school at the time was Southern Nazarene University in Oklahoma City, actually the Bethany area. And... Got recruited here and uh, decided to go ahead and sign my letter of intent to come play college golf. And that was my, I went to school to play golf. That was really the sort of the focus. I had a major, but I really wasn't um, really interested in it. I was interested in being a golfer. So I uh, came to school here and it was during my freshman year at SNU when I really uh, found a calling to go into pastoral ministry. So I laid my golf clubs down for a whole year, uh, kind of as a sacrifice, didn't play and joined the intern program which allowed me opportunities to kind of practice what it means to be a pastor in local churches in the Oklahoma City area. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually that landed me at Oklahoma City First Church of the Nazarene when I was a senior. And right after that, um, one of the pastors who was in charge of pastoral care um, uh, took a church in Houston. And so the senior pastor at the time was named Dr. Steve Green, and he was kind of my hero at SNU. He was my mentor. And he asked if I would take on um, this idea that I could be the minister of pastoral care at 21, 22 years old. And uh, I said yes um, and decided to do that while well, being his GA at SNU um, in the theology department. And so for two years, I worked um, as his GA and got my master's degree from SNU um, and then worked here at OKC First Church where we worked together. And I've been here ever since. So this is my wow. 15th year here, 14th year on staff. And I love this church. So that's kind of how we came to be. So you didn't have any family in the Church of the Nazarene? You didn't have parents in the Church of the Nazarene? Yeah, my mom and my dad, they're longtime members of Ontario First Church of the Nazarene in Ontario, Oregon. Um, My grandparents were also Nazarene uh, on my mom's side. Uh, They decided to stick with the Church of the Nazarene even though they were too liberal at the time. Uh, And the rest of my family went to go be Bible Missionary Church. And so it was my grandpa Seward who decided to, uh, it was okay to be Nazarene. And that was a really liberal choice for them. Um, My mother had short hair and they decided they could wear a ring. And the Bible Missionary, um, that was sort of out of bounds for them. So it was my family that was, at least in the Ontario, Nessa, Parma area where the Seward clan was, um, my mom's family decided they would go ahead and stick with this Wesleyan movement of the Church of the Nazarene. And so um, those those relationships have been repaired quite a bit um, in the last number of years. But from what I understand growing up, 
um, my mom's tribe uh, was sort of the liberal outcast ones that didn't necessarily have as much in common with my family that decided to sort of stick with Bible Missionary Church. So when we would have sort of family reunions, family gatherings, um, my family would show up and we would be kind of, you know, in basketball shorts and we would be, you know, we'd have, my mom would have short hair and she would have a ring and earrings. And the rest of my family were much more, I just thought they were old fashioned. You know, they were on the farm and they had buns and skirts and they were um, just different from, from my sister and I. And I didn't know it was because my family was in the middle of this big decision. Um, has the Nazarene church gotten too liberal? Because they allow you know, rings and letting, letting women cut their hair and not having to wear skirts. And so I was kind of on the liberal side of that growing up in my hometown. Wow. So tell us more, a little more about your call, how you ended up feeling called to be a pastor. Oh, that first semester was so hard. Um, I really had a difficult time adjusting to being a student and being a golfer and figuring out relationships. Um, school was very important to me. I had a larger academic scholarship than I had golf scholarship. So I would, I would go to school all morning, golf all afternoon, do homework all night, and try to fit relationships in there, and just couldn't do it, and really struggled um, in my golf game a lot. Um, it was in those moments where I felt like when I didn't have very many friends, when I didn't really feel like I had much, I really began to lean on God. And I spent a lot of time in the prayer chapel. I spent a lot of time reading scripture. And that was sort of in the moments when I kind of was looking at, what am I going to do with my life? And I felt like... Um, there were some moments, especially God and His Spirit, saying, what about this path? Um, it was a little different in that I never felt called to youth ministry. I've never been a youth pastor. I've never taught. A, I think I've done one camp revival, one camp. I think I've done one church camp uh, for a close friend of mine. But other than that, even if our youth pastor, when I first started, John Biddenorf would ask me to teach on Wednesday night. I was like, no, thank you. I am terrified of youth. I don't want anything to do with them. Let me hang out with the old folks. Let me go hang out with, I did the, the Bible study for our senior adults for years and years. Um, would preach every week on Wednesday night and have a friend lead some of the old hymns. And I just fell in love when I first started with our senior adults and started doing all of our homebound care, mm. all of our pastoral visitation, um, all of our prayer before surgeries, after surgeries. Um, and it was in those times that I began to do really most of all of the funerals um, in the life of our church. And um, gracious, that's the greatest honor for me as a pastor, even now. Within the last two weeks, I've done a funeral for one of our 97-year-old saints and one of our 98-year-old saints, back-to-back weeks, and just loved the opportunity to lay them to rest and the hope and the promise of the resurrection, and then to care for them in the time that they pass away and also their family after that happens. Man, there's no greater honor for me um, as a pastor in those moments. And I really appreciate and love the funeral service. I think I'm close to about 100 funeral services in the 14 years I've been here. And those, every single one, are a great honor. I've got a little list of the ones that I've done and have some great memories of, of moments God has given me to be able to care for people. And that's probably a little unique maybe for people my age. I think there's um, maybe some of us, but for the most part, if you, I'm about 36, and for the most part, usually when you get out of college, you go into youth ministry or college ministry or mission field, and I immediately had the opportunity to be a, this minister of pastoral care for senior adults right out of the box and immediately gained a ton of grandmas and grandpas who just loved me and taught me about the church. 
and now that I have my own kids, I've got a couple kids now, and I take them along on most of those visits now because the way that my two kids light up a room and light up the life of someone who's in their 80s or 90s is just an incredible is an incredible opportunity for me to bring elements of the joy of the gospel through my kids, but also to allow my kids to be really comfortable around those who are older. I, I think that's really amazing. What advice would you have maybe for a young pastor who hasn't done a funeral or um, is has done maybe a couple and is still trying to figure things out? What what tips or advice would you have for that person? This is great. This isn't the direction we thought we would go when we talked about this. We're close. We work down the hall from one another. Uh, but I love to talk about this. My goodness. I love visiting people who um, are homebound, and I love the opportunity to develop those relationships. And having done this now for 14 years, the level of closeness that I've gotten with some of these folks are are really strong. And so as you, as a pastor, were able to um, sort of notice that someone's not able to come to church as much, um, I would visit them in their home and sort of allow them the grace to be able to say, if you can't come to church as often, I'd love to bring church to you. Um, we celebrate the Eucharist every Sunday at OKC First Church, and so oftentimes I've got this little traveling Eucharist set. I take bread and cup into the homes of those who I get a chance to pastor who are homebound. And those are special, important, significant moments. And so um, I would just begin that journey with a homebound person, um, sort of slowly coming by occasionally. Um, Probably depends on your schedule. I try to get by at least monthly to those who are homebound. Depending on the person, it's just maybe more often. Um, and the level of relationship you have with them. And what I do usually after I've developed a close enough relationship with somebody, I usually begin to approach the subject of their funeral service before they pass away. Wow. Um, actually, I've done that quite a, for, for quite a few years now, and it's so helpful for me, for them, and for their families. It's such a gift. So usually I say, let's be thinking about it, be praying about it, and next time I come, let's talk about some of the elements that you would like for your funeral service. And... I come and I have my, my, my computer and I, I have some opportunities to ask some significant questions. And so I write out all of those things in like a half sheet of paper, um, kind of get an order of service. Who do you want to preach the sermon? Who would you like to be your pallbearers if you would like that, if you have any personal choices? Um, what songs w- would you like to be sung if you would like songs to be sung? And I, I, I write all that down and I put my name and my cell phone number in the mm-hmm. front of a Bible um, of the person who um, I'm caring for. And when they pass away, usually the family oftentimes goes to the Bible, and I oftentimes make sure I know who I need to be in contact with for someone who's homebound. But oftentimes someone has opened up that Bible. Oh, Pastor Jason's already done some of this work. Mm-hmm. So regardless of the relationship they have with their loved ones, a son or daughter or grandchild, um, sometimes those are hard conversations to have as a family. Some, some, some families have already done that, but many families haven't. And I get a chance to sort of give that gift to the family. Mm-hmm. A couple of my favorite tips... Uh, about, you know, that process. Yeah. One of them is I chart out a family tree with the person, especially before maybe they have um, issues with mental health or, you know, dementia or Alzheimer's. I like to draw out a family tree for myself. So when the time comes when I meet their family, um, I kind of know who's who. Mm-hmm. And I oftentimes will do that looking through old photo albums. If they have a recent family picture from a family reunion, I'll say, who's this, who's mm-hmm. this? And that allows stories to kind of continue to flow. Another one of my favorite moments in some of those get-to-know-you times when you're getting to know someone who's homebound is I look for an old photo album, and I just ask um, for them to kind of take me through some of those pictures. 
and tell me some of the stories. And that opens up so many memories looking at some of those pictures. And I'll oftentimes scan or take some of those, take some of those pictures and have them in a file ready to show a family. Um, and some of my favorite moments in pastoral ministry are telling families about their loved ones, stories that I've heard that they haven't heard before. Um, and that to me is such an honor to sort of listen to those stories and collect those stories and then be able to tell those stories at a funeral service. I used to really talk about my relationship with the, the person who was homebound when I would start those funeral services when I was just starting. And I realized a few years in, like, this person is not just the person that I met when they were older, or when they were in decline, when they were at home. And the family and friends that have gathered to celebrate that life at a funeral service haven't come to hear about me. They've come to hear about, hear about the fullness of a life. And so um, I have decided like, I'm not really going to talk about my relationship with that person. That could be a portion of the service, but not the main part of it. Um, for me, the main part of it is, is the fullness of someone's life. So I like to ask a family member or two, um, if at all possible, to bring a eulogy mm. um, that's, that's said, read. Oftentimes I'll ask them to write it out because that can be an emotional time for a family member. But I would much rather have a family member give a really wonderful eulogy, sometimes two, usually from a perspective of a son or daughter, and then maybe the next generation, a perspective um, from a grandchild. Um, and then after that, I can get up and I can preach Jesus, and rather than telling the life story. Now, I've done that many, many times where I've gone through the life story. Also, I think early on, I oftentimes would say, be like Mary, be like Joe, be like Mona. And I, oh, halfway through, I was like, oh, I'm doing the wrong thing. I want people to be like Jesus. I don't want to point to Jesus. And so every funeral service now, I point towards Jesus and his resurrection, mm -hmm. and I point towards resurrection hope. And I find ways to narrate someone's life in light of Christ. I'm able to point to situations or characteristics or moments in someone's life where I can say, yeah, that resembled Christ. Mm. So look at this moment, look at this characteristic, and might that point you to Christ in these moments? So I get to preach Jesus, resurrection, hope, and not necessarily just preach about someone. And that's, I think that's pretty important. Oh, also, gracious. Yeah. When I'm looking for a scripture, I like to ask the person before they pass away. But if that's not possible, I love to go through a Bible mm -hmm. and find a scripture that can be really meaningful to them in the front of their Bible, in the back of their Bible, um, something that's been underlined quite a bit. And I like to preach from scripture. Um, if I can, I like to start with scripture and begin my sermon and preach from scripture and then narrate their life in light of Christ, oftentimes in light of that particular scripture that I found to be meaningful. You've talked a lot about your work with older people, but I know that you have a passion for young pastors too. So I wonder if you could talk about your work with young pastors. Yeah, I do. I work a lot with our senior adults, but I've got this whole different other stream of my life that I'm very passionate about, and that is young pastors. Um, I was given the opportunity, I think about eight years ago, I think I was in my late 20s, uh, to be on the board of ministry of the uh, it was the Northwest Oklahoma District at the time, and now it's the Oklahoma District, and I still had a chance to be on that board. And I, I was just recently ordained, um, and I was talking to our district superintendent at the time. His name was Dr. Terry Rowland, and we're friends. I'm good friends with his, with his family, with his son especially. And I was just talking about how I thought it would be really neat to have uh, more young people and more women in the room as people came through. I just felt like that was something that I really um, had a lot of hope for. We had, a, had an older gentleman pass away, and Terry just appointed me to that board in my late 20s, and what an honor that was. And I love that. I love so much being in that room. Um, 
we have some smaller breakout rooms when we interview district licensed ministers, when we kind of have those yearly checkups um, and conversations about when, what you're doing and how it's going and what you're thinking theologically, what you're reading, how you're processing life and faith and practice. And then we have one larger room when we have sort of these ordination candidates come through. And I've done that. I think this was my eighth year to sort of sit through those ordination interviews. I, it's so humbling to be on the other side of that desk at a younger age. I'm, I've been the youngest person in that room for eight years now. Um, and I've, I've had an opportunity to sort of watch some of those people come through. And I absolutely love it. I mean, there's nothing gets me more excited than some of those times when I hear somebody come in and talk about what they believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just been a great honor. Um, and it was out of that um, that I began to sort of, I guess, field some calls and some questions. I think I was a familiar face. Uh, oftentimes we're on an educational zone. Oklahoma District has um, Southern Nazarene University very close to us. And so a lot of the people who'd come through, I had graded their papers when I was a GA. Um, I've just kept in contact with. And so I was beginning to field calls here and there mm-hmm. um, and conversation pieces about the Church of the Nazarene or just a variety of different things. I think when they walked in, they saw someone who was familiar and always for them, always for our young pastors, especially young women. Um, and so I always just loved to be able to play some of that role. Um, I was given another opportunity that allowed me to sort of even lean more into my passion for young pastors. Um, oh, I guess it was probably about five or six years ago, um, had the opportunity to go to what's called the Estes Park Consultation uh, which is a group of pastors, district superintendents, educators, and mission-minded folks mm. who gather together in Estes Park every year around Memorial Day and dream about the future of clergy development for pastors in USA Canada. And it is the coolest thing in the world. I don't know if it's a secret or not. Uh, I hope that I'm not spoiling the secret, but I don't I still don't know how I'm in the room because it is like this Nazarene living hall of fame um, or Mount Rushmore's of these Nazarene leaders and thinkers. It's just incredible. Like you just rub shoulders with people like Ron Benefield and Jess Minendorf, Tim Green, Mark Maddox, Scott Shaw, Carla Sundberg, Dana Prush, um, Tim and Shauna Gaines have been there. Danny Quanstrom's been there and presented um, on Millennial Pastors this last time, the last time we gathered to meet. And we just are sort of trying to figure out, okay, as the world changes, how do we develop? How do we educate? How do we move pastors along in the Church of the Nazarene for the hope and for the future? And it's so cool. I just love it so much. Like one of the biggest um, things is just to get people together from different regions and different roles to have conversation around these tables. And so I think there's about 80 to 100 of us, and we're just maybe 10 tables of eight apiece. And every table sort of has different people. So you're talking district superintendents, are talking to pastors, are talking to educators, and they're all from different regions. And so, so many just ideas and conversations are happening. It's so cool. And then at the lunch tables and afternoon activities, and I love it. It's like, for me, I'm, a, I'm an extrovert who loves connecting different people. It's my dream come true. Like, I, we, I could stay there for weeks. Um, and I really like how many of those people have really spoken into my life. Um, I've had uh, both Scott Shaw and Jaron Rowell be kind of my table leaders. And those guys I didn't know before, and now I really feel like I have friendships with them. Um, and those have been really special. So people that I otherwise never would have had a chance to rub shoulders with, get conversations with, and now I'm in, in contact with. And Scott Shaw and I give one other really hard time about the thunder and the sonics, and, and uh, it's been fun. I just really have developed meaningful friendships in those times. And I think that's part of the part of the point of these some of these moments. 
some of the things on some of our whiteboards and, and some of the things on some of the papers that we write down always are, the Church of the Nazarene hopes to, in its future, provide safe places for conversation for millennial pastors. And that has really touched something within me. And I mm-hmm. thought to myself, one of my skills is connecting people. One of my skills is encouraging people. And so um, I came home from this last Estes Park um, meeting when Norm Shoemaker, who's from California, um, he's another one of those Hall of Fame sorts of guys. I just love Norm. And he talked about prior to Estes Park, there was a, a group called Breckenridge, and it did the same sort of thing. Actually, the, the sort of the matrix now that you go through for ordination was created by this Breckenridge consultation. That was back in the 80s and 90s. And so they restarted it with Estes Park, sort of how are we going to do this in the future? And so uh, Norm Shoemaker said there was a spirit of Breckenridge that these moments where we gathered together pastors from different regions and from different areas, um, different types of people, we took those back home with us. And we had the same types of groups, the same sorts of groups in our home churches and our home regions. And man, I felt like uh, that was a, a confirmation of a call in my life to do that when I came home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I got back from Estes Park and I felt deeply called to start this group. And almost immediately, we had two of the brightest young women um, on our district uh, leave Nazarene pastoral ministry. Um, and my heart just broke for them and for our church because I still think, and I I'm still have great hope that they'll be continuing to be um, deep lovers and participants in the Church of the Nazarene. Um, but they both right now are not in Nazarene pastoral ministry. And I thought to myself, oh, we have to keep our young pastors. We have to keep our young women. We have to keep our these bright people who I love, and they both had come through that room when I was on the board of ministry, and I'd watched them be ordained, and they just killed their interviews. I mean, they just killed it. They were just so bright and so full of life and hope, and and they left, and I said, that's the future of the Church of the Nazarene. And I think they're doing probably what they need to be doing right now, and I don't want to place any blame on them that they're not doing the right thing, but I just sort of watched and sort of said, what could have I done to provide a space for them to have opportunities for conversation that they might be able to um, continue in pastoral ministry. And I think that at some point they both might return to pastoral ministry and within the Church of the Nazarene. Um, so I don't want to say that's just the only route of success or the only way that God might call. But as I looked around and saw other pastors um, in areas around Oklahoma, I thought to myself, what can we provide? Can we provide that safe place? Can we provide a safe space for conversation, for prayer, to encourage one another, to say, yes, stick with it. This is who we are, and we are the church. And there are so few pastors in the Church of the Nazarene under 40, um, and I want us to continue to keep those we have to encourage them, to equip them to move into the future. And so I had this idea that we would have these opportunities for young ministers in conversation to have these gatherings. And so that's something that I brought you to you, and you've been such a significant help for me, but it's kind of my my hope and my brainchild and my calling to be able to gather young ministers um, for conversation. And, and we call them the gathering. We've had four and going for about a little over a year now. And our hope was to gather Nazarene pastors in the Oklahoma area who were millennial pastors um, born after 1980 or so. We gather them here at OKC First Church. And our, our hope is that there can be education, encouragement, prayer, and conversation. And so we gather together from about nine to four um, about three times a year, and we have oftentimes a guest speaker, a couple guest speakers, breakout groups. We always end in prayer for one another. 
Um, I've been so encouraged by this. I thought that I was given this calling so I can help young millennial pastors across the Oklahoma region. And so it crosses those sort of district lines. And so that was one of the sort of the hopes is that oftentimes when you get in a particular district, you don't have camp or district assembly with other pastors. And so how can we gather pastors together for some of those moments across district lines? And then it is like a reunion every time we gather. I mean, it is so fun that first half an hour when everyone just comes together and just has great conversation. And I love it. I just love watching it. And then the educational pieces have been really neat. The conversations have been really fun. But I thought I did it for these young pastors. And really, I didn't know how much I needed it, how much I needed to see the hope and the future of the Church of the Nazarene and how how hopeful and incredible some of our young pastors are. And that has been a surprising and incredible element of this for me. So, um, What would you say to somebody who hears about young ministers in conversation and thinks, man, I would really love to have something like that where I am? Well, first off, if anybody's in the Oklahoma area and is listening to this and is you know, a millennial pastor or considers himself a millennial pastor, we'd love to have your contact information. And I'll give that at the end, I guess. Um, but yeah, I would love to have anybody who's a millennial in Oklahoma, or if you would like to drive here and come to OKC first, we'd love to have you. But it's just young ministers in conversation in the Oklahoma region. But man, you know what What I would do, Britt, I think there's some incredible things that technology can do for us. Uh, there's some really neat places where Nazarenes are gathering online. Um, a plain account is something I'd, I'd love to plug online. There's a Facebook page for that and a website for that. There's a couple of different Facebook groups that I kind of hover around. I don't post a lot in, but I'm kind of, I lurk all over Nazarene Think Tank, and I lurk all over, especially Sacramental Nazarenes. Um, What I would do probably if I was in an area that didn't have something like this, I probably would try to gather three or four people who I really liked their posts or like what they were saying, and I would just sort of say, hey, can we be in conversation with one another? I think probably the easiest way to do that would be Google Hangout. yeah, so I would get three or four people together, maybe five, six, eight, whatever you really wanted, and be able to say, hey, let's do a Google Hangout from time to time, um, once a month, one quarterly, whatever, just for just for those four things that we've put together for the gathering, which is education, encouragement, prayer, and conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think that when, when I left and hearing Danny's keynote on millennial pastors, Danny Quanstrom's keynote on millennial pastors, and time and time again, we've just retention of millennial pastors is on the hearts of all these people at Estes Park. How can we keep these young pastors in the Church of the Nazarene? And so um, I would love for people to be able to say, okay, how can I create spaces for conversation, for safe places of conversation to figure out what do I believe? Where am I going? Where is the Church of the Nazarene going? Are we comfortable with that? Mm. What can we do to move the Church of the Nazarene forward? And I think that some safe places of conversation are important for that. Mm. Um, okay, so just one last piece of your ministry that I really wanted to ask you about. Yeah. You teach a class called Disciple, and I've heard a lot of really incredible stories of people coming through that program. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how it got started, what it looks like now. Yeah, I'd love to. I, one of the things I love about working here and for our pastor, um, Pastor John Middendorf, is that essentially he just says, do what you're called, do what you love. And he's essentially hired me as Pastor Jason, and I just get to kind of do whatever I want, whatever I love. And so I've got to wear all these different hats, and I love all of them. 
And one of those is spiritual formation. And so I organize and plan all of our spiritual formation activities, the life of OKC First Church. We have uh, prayer courses um, called prayer practice that we sort of allow people to dive into prayer. We've got this really neat justice course called Just Faith. Um, it's a partnership with the Catholic Church um, to allow people to kind of find God in the midst of compassion and justice issues. Um, and our Bible class that I teach every year, I teach the first year of our Bible class, it's called Disciple. It's a United Methodist resource, um, and I absolutely love it. I've taught, um, I've taught for three years now. I've taken four groups of people through, um, and it's 34 weeks of Bible reading. It's a lot. It's a huge commitment. We ask of our people a lot. At the, at the end of it, I think we read over 60% of the Bible together. Um, we read um, from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, we read outside of class and we gather together on Wednesday nights. We meet for two hours every Wednesday night from 6.30 to 8.30. We have to extend that childcare piece because it's a lot of, it's a, it's a long night. It's a lot of reading. Um, and Disciple has these videos that we watch, and then we go through a workbook, and there's specific questions that I have asked, and we do large group work, and then we do small group work. We have breakout groups. I do some educational pieces. Um, and it's just an incredible time of together in community, reading scripture, um, and finding out the ways in which God encounters us through his word mm-hmm. and the way we encounter him through one another. And so I love the resource and I love the class. And I've, I've, I'm getting better as a teacher through three years. I, this is my best year I've ever done. Uh, just as I've gotten better. I didn't rely on the videos so much. I would oftentimes watch them a couple of times beforehand and I would just sort of pick out my favorite parts and sort of reteach that from the video myself. Um, or if I couldn't say it as good, um, as someone on the video, I would just have them say it for me. But it's really, really neat. Uh, each week has a theme, and we talk about that theme in a theme verse. And it, we, at the beginning of the night, we read our human condition, something that we're going to be encountered by this week. And then we go through the week, and at the close, we read about a mark of discipleship that um, is life-changing and life-forming for us. And so, man, there's been some really special and neat times. Um, the first month or so, we talk a lot about um, the fourth article of faith in the Church of the Nazarene, um, how we read Holy Scriptures. Um, my favorite metaphor being that the Bible is like a library with a variety of different types of books. And so as you go into the Scripture, we want to make sure we know we're in the right section of the library. And we don't go to necessarily to like the bibliography section to find out about history. So we want to make sure that as we approach Scripture and those particular books that we're looking at the right type of section of the library. And so we spend a lot of weeks sort of laying the groundwork about how we're going to encounter Scripture um, and really, I think, dynamic and incredible way where we're looking at what does it say about who God is and how we interact with God and how our life might be changed. And so the beginning is always really special for me, but then I love leaning into the exile portion of Scripture. Oh, my goodness, I love that part. So we spend a lot of time at the beginning talking about how we read Scripture, opening our eyes to about the ways in which God might encounter us through these different types of um, types of scripture that we're going to encounter in that library. But then we really love, man, we f- focus on Exodus and then exile and then Easter. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the motif that I've used for a number of years. I've stolen that, I think, directly from Dr. Marty Michelson, my Old Testament professor at SNU. Um, but yeah, we look at Exodus, exile, and Easter, sort of those big chunks. But we read the whole of the Bible. And it's incredible to watch the friendships that are built through reading scripture and community, but also the lights that go on. I think the biggest one every year, the testimony that I get every year from the majority of our classmates is that people begin to understand um, 
that God always deeply loves his people. From the beginning of time, God is love and is loving his people and is finding a ways for to redeem his people. And whether it be the Exodus story or the exile story or the Easter story, God is on the hunt for his people to redeem and rescue them. And people are able to articulate God in new and different ways. And I think one of my favorite testimonies are when someone says something along the lines of, I used to think that God was the angry God of the Old Testament, and so he sends Jesus so he can love us. Um, in fact, um, someone said this time, you know, um, it's not because Jesus, um, in fact, I can just read it. Yeah. Okay, well, I can pull it up. Um, I've got it really handy. I discovered that all along, God loved us. All my life, I thought that God was a God of wrath, so he sent his son to be the loving type. Well, I was wrong. God didn't send his son so that he could love us. God sent his son because he loves us. I can't say that I've memorized a bunch of verses in the Bible, but I can say that I know the Lord truly loves me, and I don't have to live in guilt anymore. My relationship with the Lord is not based upon works, and I finally understand how a healthy relationship with the Lord works. Oh, I love this one too. The high point of the course was the pleasure of forming habits so supportive of a Christian life. This is easily the most I've read the Bible in one systematic effort. This has encouraged me to carry my Bible with me in my car and in my work bag. I'm definitely more able to use scripture as a part of my prayers and as a guide in my conversations. My faith has been strengthened in the aspect of a personal relationship with a loving God, as opposed to living Christianly as a mere code of conduct. Oh, I loved those. I loved those. I love taking somebody through scripture and watching their whole idea of who God is change. That God is always love and has been always love and deeply loves his people and is sort of seeking them and chasing them that he might love and redeem them. And I think that's sort of the core message of um, the scripture. I think that's the core message of this Wesleyan vision of who God is and being able to take people through from beginning to end Sometimes people are scared of scripture and they're scared of what they might find. And they're scared of this angry God who they don't know what to do with. They're trying to really struggle with some of those moments of genocide and anger and wrath. And so I'm able to, through 34 weeks, take them through that and have them see, oh, God's always been love Mm -hmm. and is seeking you. Um, And that's so special to me. I just love it. So yeah, I love scripture and I love leading and teaching scripture. And it's one of the many hats that I wear, but I, I think that's getting close to one of my very favorite ones. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that with us. If somebody's inspired by one of the projects that you're working on and wants to learn more about Disciple or Young Ministers in Conversation, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah. Uh, please email me, jason at okcfirst.com. Um, it'd be the easiest way to email me, but I'm on a variety of different social media efforts. Um, on Facebook, you can find me. There's lots of Jason Smiths in the world, so you can just type in Jason K. Smith. Um, or you can type in facebook.com slash Jason K. Smith. Um, that's an easy way to find me on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I love Twitter. I don't post a lot, but I lurk a lot uh, at, at Jason K. Smith underscore. And I'm on Instagram. If people are interested in Instagram at all, I don't really post much about Jesus on Instagram. But I'm a Jason K. Smith on Instagram as well. That's awesome. Thank you for being with me. Oh, you're the best. Wait, wait. Can I say something? Yeah, go ahead. Super excited about this project. I love this Nazarene life. I've uh, been super excited to have you do this. And I want to be like a field reporter slash executive producer. Like if anybody's gotten this far, maybe they love Ira Glass. If I could be like Nancy Updike or Chana Jaffe Walt or um, any of uh, like Sarah Koenig, if I could be any of those people to help you do field stories as a field reporter or a producer, please count me in. 
Absolutely. We'll do it. Okay. I love you. Thanks.